So last week, we're going to, again, pick up where we left off, which was we were beginning to talk about what I think is a very transformative metaphor or image. Um, and I stopped because I didn't want to barely get into it. I wanted to do it right. And it is an image that, uh, well, there's a couple of, I'll just give you a brief history. But Dr. Willard Harley wrote this book, His Needs, Her Needs, uh, which has, you know, been around a while, but which is still a classic uh, for couples that are thinking about getting married or are already married about serving your spouse, and that's how you build kind of an affair-proof, healthy marriage. Uh, Gary Chapman, who wrote The Five Love Languages, so Willard Harley came up with the love bank. Uh, Gary Chapman, who wrote The Five Love Languages, has the love tank, okay? So kind of different authors with their own, but they're, they're essentially the same thing. I'm going to use the love bank from Harley, though, because I like that idea of of you love someone by making deposits. You're always making deposits or withdrawals in any relationship. And he says, it, it's really common sense. If, if you make more withdrawals than you're making deposits, you're in trouble. You're in a love deficit type of situation. Um, and, uh, and I like this, and I find it very helpful because I think it, it unites the way that... Um, it unites the way people normally out there talk about love as a feeling, okay? It, it honors that. It takes that. And it also unites that with the way Jesus talks about love as an action, as a verb, acts of kindness and compassion toward another person. And you'll hear both of these in, in this short reading. This is from Dr. Willard Harley. He said, Inside all of us is a love bank with accounts in the names of everyone we know. When these people are associated with our good feelings, love units are deposited into their accounts. And when they are associated with our bad feelings, love units are withdrawn. We are emotionally attracted to people with positive balances and repulsed by those with negative balances. This is the way our emotions encourage us to be with the people who treat us well and avoid those who seem to hurt us. The emotional reactions we have toward people, whether attraction or repulsion, is not a matter of choice. Love bank balances cause them. Try choosing to be attracted to those you associate with some of your worst experiences. It's almost impossible. Or try feeling repulsed by those associated with your best feelings. You do not decide whom you will like or dislike. It's their association with your feelings, whether they have made love bank deposits or withdrawals, that determines your emotional reactions to them. We like those with positive love bank balances and dislike those with negative balances. I'll put a little star right there. So agape, I love in spite of. Well, I like his wordage here because he's talking about liking people. You don't get to choose who you like or dislike. You can choose who you love. So he's talking about uh, like right here. You don't choose to like someone. You like them because they have a positive balance with you. And now he shifts into a particular example, the marriage relationship. He says, the feeling of love is the way our emotions encourage us to spend more time with someone who takes especially good care of us, someone who is effective at making us feel happy and knows how to avoid making us feel unhappy. 
We would certainly want to spend time with someone we simply liked, but by giving us the feeling we call love, our emotions give us added motivation. We find ourselves not only wanting to be with the person, but also craving that person. When we are together, we feel fulfilled. When we are apart, we feel lonely and incomplete. So the feeling of love is usually effective not only in drawing people together for significant amounts of time, but also in encouraging them to spend their entire lives together in marriage. But our emotions give us more than the feeling of love. When they identify someone who makes us happy, they also motivate us to reciprocate by encouraging us to make that person happy to serve them. They do this by making it seem seem almost effortless to do what makes most of us the happiest. Have you ever noticed that when you are with someone you love, you seem instinctively affectionate, conversant, admiring, That's because your emotions want to keep that person around. So it gives you instincts that help you make that person happy, which, if effective, triggers his or her feeling of love for you. The quote-unquote look of love not only communicates our feeling of love for someone, but also reflects our instinct to do whatever it takes to make that person happy. When a man and a woman are both in love, their emotions encourage them to act uh, or to make each other happy for life. In fact, the thought of spending life apart is usually frightening. It seems to them that they were almost made to be together for eternity. In almost every case, a man and woman marry because they are in love and because they are in love because their love bank balances are above the romantic threshold. But what goes up can usually come down. And the love bank balances are no exception. As, married, as most married couples have discovered, the romantic feeling of love is much more fragile than originally thought. And if love bank balances drop below the romantic love threshold, a couple not only may lose their feeling of passion for each other, but they also lose their instinct to make each other happy. What was once effortless now becomes awkward and even repulsive. Instead of the look of love, couples have the look of apathy. And without love, a husband and wife no longer want to spend their lives together. Instead, they start thinking of divorce or at least living their lives apart from one another. It should be obvious to you that the love bank is an extremely important concept in marriage. If you want your instincts and emotions to support your marriage, you must keep your love bank accounts over the romantic love threshold. But how can you keep your balances that high, and what can you do if they have already fallen below that threshold? I've worked long and hard to find answers to these questions because they hold the key to saving marriages. Without love, spouses are poorly motivated to remain married for life. But with the restoration of love and its accompanying instinct to spend life together, the threat of divorce is overcome. Marriages are saved when love is restored. Just one more paragraph here. All of my remaining basic concepts will help me explain the answer to those questions, but the general principle is simple. If a couple wants to have a happy and fulfilling marriage, they must make as many love bank deposits as possible and avoid making withdrawals. To achieve this, behavior 
must change. A husband and wife must learn how to make each other happy and how to stop making each other unhappy. So as a husband, am I consciously making deposits in my wife's love bank? As a father, am I consciously pouring in and making deposits in my children's accounts? As your brother in Christ, am I making deposits in your accounts? Or am I always making withdrawals? As an ambassador to Christ, and this is what we were doing yesterday in Transformed Dallas, our mission is to make deposits into the love banks of those hurting people around us. How are we doing with that? And I think the image is, is powerful because it helps me get really concrete. Okay, I want to love someone. And taking that idea and translating that into action, what action? Well, actions that pour in, that bless, that help, that encourage another person. They take it beyond the feeling stage to the action stage. Now, the one big asterisk on this goes back to something we've talked about the last couple of weeks, which is agape, which is God's unconditional love, because obviously, unconditional love or no-strings-attached love is not about reciprocity. It's not about, I'm going to invest in you so that you'll invest back in me. I may hope for that, but I do not expect that, and I do not demand that. The cross is the ultimate example of that, right? That Christ loved us, died for us when we were undeserving. We had not put deposits into his account, and he died for us. Um, He gave us the gift of life, And he pours into our lives. Whether we are believers or not, all of the good things that we need, all of the good things that we enjoy, God is the source of those things. As the Bible says, he makes the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. But we were rebellious, (laughs) we were sinful, we were ungrateful, and Jesus went to the cross for us. As Romans 5, verse 8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died. For us while we were still sinners. So I think that distinction uh, is an important, or that nuance is an important one to make when we talk about the idea of the love bank. So at the same time, yes, I love that image. It's very helpful to me, not just in marriage, but in all relationships, that I need to be thinking and I need to be uh, intentional. I need to be strategic about making those deposits in the love banks of those people all around us. And that is spot on. But like Christ, like Christ, we won't always do that because the other person deserves it. We won't always do that because we feel like doing that or because we feel like we owe them something or, we feel, or they've been especially charming or especially lovely to us. Uh, agape love is not always going to work in those, in those ways. It's going to go beyond that. It's going to break through those things. But as disciples, even the smallest gesture or word to someone can demonstrate the love of God to that person and help build them up. So in our marriages, in our friendships, um, we only get to withdraw what we have put in. And in any honest, long-term relationship, we will make withdrawals from time to time. We will not behave perfectly. We will not always say the right and apt word in every situation. We will not always remember the important dates. So we will make withdrawals. We will mess up 
from time to time. Uh, we'll lose our tempers. We'll, we'll act without kindness. But if you've been making those deposits along the way in that marriage, in that friendship, with that business partner, if you've been making those deposits with your sons, your daughters, your friends, um, if you've been making those deposits, you're going to be okay. Because the bank balance is still going to be positive. That's the basic idea. If you haven't uh, made those investments in that relationship, then it's going to be tough when the withdrawals happen. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, finally tonight, so finally, <laughs> we're going to get to one of the love languages. I want to talk about this one, which I'm not sure if it's because of its importance or if he just wrote this one down first. But Gary Chapman uh, designates words of affirmation as his first love language. Um, and for some people, it is their primary love language. There are five. Uh, we've talked about those, and we'll talk about those some more. Um, you're generally really fluent in one love language. That means that's how you express love and how you receive love. You might be somewhat fluent in another love, love language as well. Um, people whose primary love language is words of affirmation feel uh, most loved when they receive a compliment, when they receive encouragement, when they receive any heartfelt, we're not talking about false flattery here, but a heartfelt word of affirmation, they feel treasured by that. And those of us who feel love through words almost always use that love language to express our love to other people. So, like I said, it tends to go both ways. If you're fluent in that, it probably means you, you feel loved through it and you express love through it. Um, so the Bible, I'm sure you're aware, has quite a bit to say about the tongue about words, about the power of words and how they are to be used to bless and heal, not curse and destroy. A few examples. Um, none of these will really surprise you, I'm sure. But Proverbs 12, verse 25. An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. Proverbs 18, 21. Think about, what the, think about the power of the tongue here. The tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. And then Proverbs 16, 24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Words of affirmation, expressing thanks, Appreciation, a compliment, or another word of blessing to that other person is a powerful way to express love. Like, you know, your hospital visit the other day to my mother, who was in the hospital, was very appreciated. Thank you for going by and taking the time to, to see her. It meant a lot to us. Or to your wife, thanks, thanks for getting the babysitter lined up so we can go out on our date tonight. Appreciate that. Or to a friend, I, I just love the way that you always make me laugh. The thing about this love language is the, the words of affirmation. With this particular love language, there are literally 
limitless possibilities. You can be so amazingly creative uh, with using words of affirmation. You can use your words to touch someone in all sorts of beautiful ways. Um, Here are a few different, I guess you could say, categories of words of affirmation. One would be gratitude, expressing gratitude to another person, uh, letting them know that you noticed what they did and it meant something to you, a word of thanks when someone does something good uh, that you appreciate, a simple thank you lets them know that uh, you noticed what they did personally. I'm a big fan of the handwritten thank you note. Isn't it great when you get something in the mail that something actually wrote, somebody wrote with their, with their own hand? I think that's powerful. I think, I think texting and emailing is fine, but I think a handwritten note is more powerful uh, on an old-fashioned pen and paper. Uh, so words of gratitude, of recognizing what someone did, what someone said, uh, what they did for your kid uh, or your wife. Uh, then there are encouraging language uh, words. Encourage literally means to infuse courage, okay? To, to pump courage into another person. Chapman says that to share words of encouragement, part of that involves seeing things from another person's uh, perspective. Being able to kind of put yourself in their shoes, identify with what's going on with them, and then speak back into that. Now, too often, as you know... Uh, <laughs> This is what happens out there. It's more people tearing each other down, complaining, sarcasm, criticism, uh, instead of building up and infusing with courage. Uh, Positivity is a much more powerful motivator in the world than is negativity. Uh, Encouragement, like your kid is about to take the field for the big basketball game, and you tell them, son, you got this. I've seen you practice. You got this. You're going to have a good day today. Um, that, kind of, that would be encour- or encouragement to your spouse who's starting a business, honey. Um, this is going to work out. Um, one thing I love about you is the way you set your mind to something and you stick with it all the way. And I want you to know I'm going to stick with it all the way too. I'm going to stay in this to help you. I'm with you. We're going to succeed at this. And then words of kindness. Again, limitless possibilities. Words of kindness. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul told us that love is kind. It is kind. Uh, And we're not just talking about choosing the right words. And you know this, but let's remind ourselves of what we already know. 90% of this is is the way you speak to someone, is the tone of voice, right? Is, Is how you convey those words to another person. I mean, after dinner... Uh, with your spouse, you could say, I'd be happy to do the dishes tonight. Or you could say, I'd be happy to do the dishes again. Okay, tone of voice kind of matters a little bit there. Um, So if there's not a kind way to say something, it's probably a good idea not to say it. And I appreciate one of our sisters here at Preston Crest who... Uh, who thinks I should wear a tie every Sunday morning. I appreciate her. And what I appreciate about her, I'm not going to wear a tie every Sunday morning, but what I appreciate about her is she doesn't come up to me and say, I wish you'd wear a tie every Sunday morning. What she does is she strategically waits until that Sunday, one in six generally, that I do wear a tie, and then she says, my, you look nice this morning. It's a positive, and I appreciate that. 
I appreciate her for doing that. Uh, she does it in a way that blesses, in a way that affirms. I also get the message, but it's, it's delivered in a way that doesn't tear down. And sometimes I actually wear a tie just for her, so there you go. Finally, in this language of love, we need to understand that love, listen up on this one, <laughs> love makes humble requests. Love does not make demands. Humility in our words is important. Love is not pushy. And I think you can see that if you read 1 Corinthians 13. It doesn't need to, as Paul says, get its way. Um, we cannot get the genuine love that our hearts desire by way of demand. So whether it's at work, whether it's in the home, whether it's at, here at church, um, those around us may, yes, they may end up complying with our demands, with our orders, but it's not really an expression of love. It can be a response generated by guilt and fear. Churches are pretty good at that sometimes. It can be something else, a reward or fear of punishment or something like that, kind of carrot or stick, but it's not love. And Chapman says, quote, a humble request. I love that, a humble request. It creates the possibility for an expression of love, whereas a demand suffocates that possibility. So life has a way of beating people down, not building them up. It is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It is a competitive world. It is a place where folks in many spheres of life are jockeying for position, competing with each other. And so instead of words of affirmation, we get used to words of belittlement, words of diminishment, words of criticism, ridicule, sarcasm. Those are oftentimes the steady input that is feeding into a person's life day after day. And that, I think, shows us why this love language is so important. And it lets us know, despite the, the cool facade that so many people put on, people are starving for this. People need this. And you have no idea the impact that your words of affirmation, encouragement, blessing, um, gratitude have on another person. So, we need to be blessed. We have that need. And we are called by God to pour blessing out into the lives of others. Now, here's a fun, fun one for you today. So, in the New Testament, this word um, blessing or giving someone a blessing is the Greek word eulogeo, eulogeo, which literally means a good word, a you, a logos, a good word. Um, to bless is literally pouring a good word into somebody. Uh, eulogeo is the root word that, from which we get eulogy in a funeral. And in a funeral, the eulogy is just the part where somebody st stands up and says a bunch of nice stuff about the person who died, right? That's what you do at a eulogy. You say nice stuff about the person who passed away, which is great, um, but I would humbly suggest that it is better to offer someone a eulogio, to offer someone a good word while they are still alive. 
not when they are a corpse lying at the front of an auditorium in some church building or funeral home. Um, it's better to pour your eulogio into their life when you see them in the foyer, when you see them in the parking lot, when you're interacting with them on social media, than it is to wait until they're gone and share your eulogio with their family. That's nice. But why not do that while they're still around? The Scriptures do not call us to save up our words of affirmation until someone is gone. They never command us or ask us to do that, but the Scriptures call us to use those words because they are powerful, life and death, to use those right now in the land of the living. Uh, God blessed. Think about this. And so many examples in Scripture, we could go to Jacob blessing his children. You could go all over the place. Um, to all these blessings, verbal blessings in Scripture. But think about how God blessed the Son, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, think about this. And it, it's this voice that calls out. It says, a voice from heaven said, this is God, this is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. That is a beautiful blessing. This is my boy, and I love him, and I'm very pleased with him. That's a good starting place, a good model for how we would bless our children, I think, and how we could bless one another. Isaac calls his sons together and speaks words of blessing over them. Jacob does the same thing, speaks words of blessing over his sons. Paul generally, if you think about it, you kind of flip through your Bible tonight or something, Paul generally in his letters in the New Testament both opens and closes each letter with words of blessing even to the most messed up churches in the New Testament, like the Corinthian church. He reminds them of who they are, he blesses them, with his words. And we need to bless each other with our words as well. So when we choose that way, the way of blessing others, we direct God's goodness into their lives. Um, we intercede for them. We speak of what, of God's work that we witness in their life. I really see God doing this in your marriage. I really saw Jesus in you yesterday at Transformed Dallas. Um, there's tremendous power. You really can't overestimate the power of words to bless others. And we need courage, I think. And we need love to speak those words instead of holding them in. Now, blessing, as we finish, I'll just point this out. Blessing someone is not making stuff up. Okay? It's not inventing things. I'm going to make them feel good. So I'll say, boy, I just love I love how you sing. You've got a great singing voice. Never, ever do that to someone, right, unless you really, really mean it. We could tell stories, I'm sure. Um, blessing someone is not false flattery. It's not saying things that are nice, but not true. It's saying positive things that are true, positive, uplifting truths about what you see in someone, about what they did, or about potential that you see for them, or about how you feel about them, uh, verbalizing those things that are true, uh, that is what blessing is. So let's bow our heads. We're going to close out this time, and I just want to invite God to help us with this. It's so important. God, we see you in the Scriptures blessing. 
You spoke words of blessing over your people, Israel. You speak words of blessing over us, telling us how you feel about us, adopting us into your family, calling us your sons and daughters, proclaiming us to be holy and unblemished because of Jesus. And we see how you model that with your own son Jesus, speaking those words of blessing. And Father, in a world that's so full of negativity, where people are oftentimes comp- uh, competing with each other for the sharpest barb, the funniest sarcastic comeback, where we get so used to expressing our dislike and criticism for different things and feeling somehow like that's our right and maybe even our obligation to do. Help us to break those cycles and to be a people of the blessing, speaking words of affirmation into the starving hearts of people around us and to pour into their love bank, to make those deposits, Father, that they can see your love and see the Spirit of Christ at work in us. Help us to do that. Help us to filter our words for building up, not tearing down. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's be standing together and worship.